If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. During this difficult time, we want to make it as easy as possible for our readers to get their copy of BBC History Magazine or BBC History Revealed. So for the next few months, we'll deliver your favourite magazine direct to your door with no delivery charge. From today, you can save up to 70% off the shop price and subscribe from just £9.99. That's just £1.66 per issue. There's never been a better time to get your favourite history magazine delivered direct to your home. To take advantage of this unmissable offer, please visit www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra and choose your magazine. Don't forget, all of our magazines are also available digitally on your mobile or tablet device. Visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra for more information. We look forward to welcoming you. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Welcome back to our special podcast series, delving into everything you ever wanted to know but were too afraid to ask about some of history's biggest subjects. 
Today's episode is all about one of the largest and most dramatic invasions in military history, D-Day. To tell us more about what exactly happened on the 6th of June 1944, today's guest is military historian Peter Caddick-Adams, who's also the author of Sand and Steel, A New History of D-Day. Putting the questions to Peter was our editor, Rob Attar. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Peter Caddick-Adams, who is a military historian, author and broadcaster, and who's also served as an officer himself in the UK regular and reserve forces. He's written several books of military history, but uh, most pertinent for today, Sand and Steel, A New History of D-Day, which was published last year to rave reviews and has actually just been released in paperback. Uh, For those who've not listened to one of these episodes before, I'm going to ask Peter a selection of questions on D-Day, which are drawn from queries that you've sent in on our social media, and also some of the most popular search terms. And just to start off, we'll begin with a couple of Google questions to give us some context for the more detailed questions. So first up then, Peter, what does the D in D-Day stand for? I'm often asked about this question, um, and the answer is it doesn't stand for anything. The truth of the matter is that uh, all operations had a a very boring title. No one had really standardised anything, and the D is simply the phonetic alphabet, uh, just as H is for hour, and this is the way you tie down in military speak um, a precise time and date uh, for your operation. And it hadn't happened really very much before. Um, And this is really Winston Churchill tying things down. He had written a lot of military history about his ancestors. And of course, he'd been intimately involved in the First World War. And he knew that the Germans at the end of the First World War had operation names and countdowns. And so this is how D uh, evolves. And it doesn't stand for deliverance or anything else that people suggest. It's simply the first initial letter of the word day. So essentially it's day, day. It's day, day. And then uh, if you're part of it, you want to know what time you're landing right down to the minute. And and that is H for hour. And so a combination of the two will give you uh, a specific time and a specific day, right down to the last minute or second, uh, and you would know when you were landing. Um, and we've used it ever since. Um, so there is a saying that Robert Kappa, who was a photographer on D-Day, said, he said, there are many D-Days, and we had to get up at four in the morning for all of them, but uh, there is only one D-Day in capital letters that has carried on through history. And that's what we're talking about now. And here's another one from Google. When and how did D-Day start? We've always known that we would have to uh, launch uh, an assault against German-held Europe, probably France, almost from the beginning of the uh, the Second World War, certainly after the fall of France in 1940. So the plans for a return to, to mainland Europe were based really on our worries of the Germans invading Britain in 1940. And the first plans were put together as reverse invasion exercises. So all the worry in 1940 was how the Germans and where the Germans would land uh, on British soil. Uh, And as soon as that concern was over um, in autumn 1940, as ways of distracting people, as ways of coming up with good military contingency practice, the senior generals then started wargaming how we would do the opposite uh, and land in France. And that's where the first invasion plans come from. There's huge amounts of debates, and we could have hours and hours of wonderful uh, fun 
debating uh, why and where and how. The Americans want to go early. We realise that the Germans are so tough an enemy that British policy throughout 1942 and 1943 is to persuade our American colleagues to wait and, and gain experience and also develop all the craft and tanks and aircraft we need and in the right quantities uh, before we eventually land because a premature landing would have been absolutely disastrous. That was what Churchill felt at the time. Roosevelt supported him. We have to give a big shout to our Canadian partners. Um, They're often in danger of being left out of the D-Day story. And and it's not only manpower, it's their huge manufacturing capacity uh, that helps Britain in her hour of need. So it all really comes together for 1944. Churchill is reluctant uh, to go ahead too quickly, Uh, The Americans eventually get suspicious of this, and so there is a narrative that Churchill was against D-Day. I don't think it was so much that he was against D-Day. His obsession was the Mediterranean, which was really a British sea in those days, whereas the Americans wanted to get on with the main business, which they saw as an invasion of France. And eventually, it's at the big power conference in Tehran, uh, where Stalin and Roosevelt really gang up on the British um, and also at Casablanca, and we eventually sort of cave in to American and, and Russian pressure to get on and name D-Day as a date uh, and, and give it a commander-in-chief who is, of course, Eisenhower. Now, um, you just talked earlier about the Canadian angle. We did actually have a question came in on Twitter from uh, Ian Duncan, who's a history teacher in Canada. And so he asked, do you feel that the Canadian contributions to D-Day are overlooked? in the typical narratives? And if so, why is that? Well, I think what's happened is there have been many British and American historians who've been writing for larger markets. uh, And so they have played to what their publishers want, which is their readers. And so the Canadians have tended to get left out of the story, not completely, but there is emphasis put on the British role because they land on two beaches and the American role because they also land on two beaches. Um, and it tends to shut the Canadians out. And the the biggest piece of evidence towards that uh, supposition is the book and the film The Longest Day. This is so important in understanding the D-Day story, because whenever I take people to the f- beaches of northern France uh, or I discuss it, most people reach back to the 1959 book, which is written by a, a journalist who was there, Cornelius Ryan, Um, or the film which comes out three years later, which everybody has seen, The Longest Day. And that hardly gives the Canadians any presence at all. Whereas, in fact, a fifth of the the efforts... The Royal Canadian Navy off the Normandy beaches is huge. They're flying overhead in hundreds of aircraft. Uh, And, of course, they land a complete division on Juneau Beach with great success. Uh, And they make the greatest strides, really, on D-Day itself. And I think the important thing to remember uh, is that the Canadians have a ghost which is haunting them, which is Dieppe in August 1942, when almost an entire division is, if not captured, then shattered. And they themselves have to wrestle with the ghost of landing in northern France and not getting caught out uh, and, and destroyed. So they do spectacularly well. And uh, they are in danger of getting left out of the story. I think much less so because there are lots of great Canadian historians themselves who are re-examining their role. So I think now more than ever, we are happy with with the way Canada's role has been portrayed. But that that did drift uh, a little in the 60s, 70s and 80s. 
Great. And uh, so here's another Google question, uh, quite a big one here. What happened on D-Day? Clearly, you've written a whole book about this, but is there a summary you can give us? Yes. I mean, D-Day is the sum of all the allied amphibious warfare expertise up to that date, and it's really quite incredible. So if we understand that sooner or later we're going to have to land on the coast uh, of northern France, um, it's going to be uh, an opposed landing because the Germans will be there. And certainly uh, from 1942, they've been building defences along the coastline. And from the beginning of 1944, they've been strengthening those uh, particularly at places like Omaha Beach. So we're aware of that. We're very worried about the German uh, build-up of reserves. The Allied air forces have uh, set the scene by destroying much of the communications to northern France, railroads, bridges, railway lines, uh, marshalling yards, uh, and so on. Uh, and that will stop the Germans uh, sending their reinforcements in quickly. So D-Day is a battle between the, the Allies landing from the sea, and that's always a nightmare, even in calm weather uh, and uh, even with few defenders, because all sorts of things can go wrong. And we were expecting perhaps 10 or 15% of the, the assault force to drown before anyone's even shooting at them. The channel is notoriously difficult, so that adds to our problem. And we've got huge redundancy built in in terms of the, the logistics so that everything can be replaced if, if, if the worst happens. So D-Day is the story of this, which the Allies have been rehearsing for over a year, projecting force uh, onto the North uh, French coast. Uh, and of the Germans not knowing where or when and trying to oppose that. And, of course, the first 24 hours is is key for both sides. Um, the German morale will be high. They'll be incentivized to fight on if they can see that they're making progress and defeating the invasion. And likewise, for the Allies, absolutely crucial that this massive investment in, in rehearsal um, goes well. The key takeaway, I think, is that there are two battles. One is the battle on D-Day where an overwhelming Allied force, with the help of surprise, lands against quite weak German defenders. That battle takes 24 hours. And the battle we're more familiar with is the battle that starts on the 7th of June, once the German reinforcements start to arrive, panzers, SS troops, uh, against the Allies, who now have to learn how to fight against not static German defenders, but mobile ones with all the kit that they've brought from the Eastern Front and all that combat experience. And that's a very different battle. Um, and the two are often conflated into one. So there are two different sides to this. My own view is that the Allies, having spent one, two, sometimes more years rehearsing for D-Day, British 3rd Division who land on Sword Beach, have done nothing since 1940, if you spend all that time rehearsing for a 24-hour period and you can't get it right, then you're in the wrong business completely. So the invasion goes spectacularly well. Where the Allies start to unravel a little bit is the fight afterwards. But that's another story. That's a two-and-a-half-month-long campaign in Normandy. But we can, we can talk about that as well. Now, I, I guess we've kind of answered this already, but another question from Google was, who won the Battle of D-Day? I suppose we're talking here about 6 June 44 specifically, and also why. Well, the Allies are the definite winners on D-Day. Each beach landing is successful, Omaha at great cost and, and uh, with nothing like the original objectives being attained. Uh, and some of the beaches have started to, to link up, um, notably Gold uh, and Juno, for example. 
the paratrooper landings have all been successful, uh, and although they take huge losses, um, a lot are separated, a lot are posted missing initially. The paratroopers, especially, and it's worth singling them out, so they land uh, before the seaborne invaders. Uh, they cause great confusion. The Germans don't know what's going on. They send troops to chase uh, groups of paratroopers who are all over the place, and they act as a force multiplier. So the Germans are so very worried about huge numbers of uh, hostile troops behind their own lines. And that isn't actually reflected in the reality of small groups of often lost, embarrassingly so, uh, Allied paratroopers. But this dissipates the German strength. So it's certainly a German loss, um, and it's an an Allied victory. But that's a snapshot, because this is the the first day of a 77 day long campaign but it starts off on the right foot for the allies and a question here from a twitter follower at ernest malley who describes himself as a time traveling vcr salesman and uh, he wants to know were the choices of divisions used on d-day the right ones and with hindsight could other units available have done better well that's a very interesting question because what lands is a mix of very well-experienced troops and some who've never, ever fought in combat. And this is the fifth year of World War II. So what we need to to remember is the British and the Americans pull out their most experienced troops from the Mediterranean. And this is why we get the uh, 51st Highland Division, who who land a bit later, but their first elements land uh, on the 6th of June. This is why we get the 50th Northumberland Division uh, landing on Gold Beach, because they're very experienced. Um, elements of the American armoured divisions, and particularly the 1st Infantry Division, who fought all the way through the Mediterranean, uh, are pulled back. And what we try and do is blend combat-hardened units with newbies who've never really fought in combat before. And the proof of the pudding is we get the blend right. But it also reflects the fact that the Mediterranean theatre is still going on. We can't withdraw everyone from that. We don't have enough experienced troops to go round, so we're going to have to feed in people who haven't done this before. Notably, the 4th US Infantry Division, who land at Utah, do superbly well, considering they've never locked horns with the Germans in World War II. 3rd British Infantry Division um, at uh, at Sword Beach. Uh, And to a certain extent, most of the Canadians haven't fought um, against the Germans either. So it's a mix. Of course, the the implication in this question is, are those who land tired? And certainly the 50th uh, Infantry Division who land uh, at Gold Beach are really angry and annoyed that Montgomery has got them to fight um, in Normandy again, because some of them have fought in 1940. They then moved to the Western Desert. They fought under Montgomery and 8th Army all through 1941-42. They've been part of the Mediterranean campaign in Sicily in 1943. Um, So for them, this is their umpteenth assault landing uh, and their uh, fourth or fifth year of war against the Germans. And yes, some of them are combat tired, but they're extremely good. And so that's the important thing. All the Allied commanders realise they need the... Um, the creme de la creme in there in the assault wave. But if you're part of the assault wave and you've done it before, you're not too happy about having to put your life on the line again. And I guess on a similar theme, Remove45 on Twitter asks, how were beach assignments determined and units selected for those assignments? Well, the, the the split between the British and the Americans is easy. The the US forces, once they arrive in southern England, 
uh, are directed to uh, southwest England, so Devon, Cornwall, Somerset, places like that, simply because the rest of southern England is full. The Canadians are in sort of Hampshire uh, and Wiltshire, and uh, the British uh, forces are in southeast England. So there's nowhere else for the Americans to go, and it makes perfect sense for them to invade the beaches opposite them, uh, which is why they get the two western beaches of uh, Utah and Omaha. Canadians are in the middle, so it makes sense that they're they're going to be sort of somewhere in the middle. They go to Juneau Beach. Um, so that's how the, the beach assignments sort of fall out. What was the other half of the question? It was, uh, how were units selected for those assignments? The, the the unit selection is interesting. 29th Division had been in England. This is an American division, had been in England for a long time. Uh, and as Bradley remembered in his memoirs, had sort of staked out a claim uh, for being one of the assault divisions. What we have to remember is the original invasion plan was actually just covering the four beaches. And Utah arrives at the beginning of 1944 uh, as a separate uh, mission. Um, and the idea there is if you land on the, the base of the Cotentin coast, you might have an attempt to reach the port of Cherbourg. Uh, and this is the entire driver. D-Day is not about amphibious uh, assaults uh, being successful. It's all about the successful imposition of allied logistics. It's all very well arriving on the uh, the coast, but if you can't sustain your invasion force uh, and then allow them to build up and break out, uh, then the whole effort is for nothing. So for that, we need harbours. Now, we know that we're going to take two floating harbours um, with us, complete surprise to the Germans. We're not convinced that they will work because they're completely untested. So we do want to pop at either Cherbourg or Le Havre. And of the two, Cherbourg is by far the easiest to get uh, into because if, if we circle round behind it, the, the Germans have very little sort of um, defence uh, facing landward. So that's the idea of Utah Beach and the 4th uh, Infantry Division and the two US Airborne Divisions as well who are going to ease the passage of the 4th in- Infantry off Utah Beach. So that's what that's all about. And that, that completely messes up all the shipping timetables, the logistics, and actually causes a month's delay uh, in D-Day because we don't have enough shipping. Um, so that's a very bold move. It's a very late change in the plan. That's how that part of the um, the mission uh, is selected. Uh, the other airborne divisions, British 6th Airborne Division, it is a sort of compilation of some of the most experienced uh, airborne troops who fought in Tunisia and some of them in Sicily. So this is a sort of fusion of a huge amount of paratrooper experience, but a lot of um, newly trained glider troops uh, who've uh, uh, trained in the air landing role uh, as well. Uh, And of the others, um, we've got the Canadians. This is the spare division who isn't involved in the Mediterranean and hasn't been shattered at Dieppe uh, in 1942. British 3rd Division have not taken any part in combat uh, before, but have been training for four years for this. So a degree of institutional expertise. And then Gold Beach is full of really seasoned, hardened professionals. Now, having a look at the aerial aspect of D-Day, we had a Starjammer Skies on Twitter who asked, did the achievements of the airborne troops justify the colossal resources it took to train, equip and deploy them? Well, there are two ways of looking at this. If you look at the um, the missions set, did the airborne troops uh, achieve them? Uh, and in most cases, no, because they're dropped at night. They're widely scattered 
Um, and a lot of the missions are not achieved by the time the seaborne invaders arrive. But that's not the right way of looking at it, because what is the net effect that the airborne troops uh, achieve? And that is great confusion uh, and concern in the German ranks. The Germans have no idea how many uh, Allied airborne soldiers have been dropped. It's about 15,000 by parachute and glider. And to them, it's much, much more. They think it's huge numbers of divisions, um, probably three or four times the number who've actually dropped. And the Germans run around in great confusion. They're worried about their own logistics uh, network being uh, affected, and they divert troops who would have otherwise gone to the coast to deal with the paratroopers. And that's the great achievement of the airborne forces. So we can look back and say, without the three Allied airborne divisions being deployed, uh, the lot of the seaborne invaders would have been much, much more difficult and possibly impossible to achieve. Certainly without the two airborne divisions, 101st and 82nd in the Cotentin Peninsula, the troops wouldn't have got off Utah Beach as well and as quickly as they would have done, and the German reserves would have massed and counterattacked. Um, the same with the British on, uh, on Sword Beach, without the 6th Airborne Division doing their stuff there, distracting the Germans. Uh, and they really do distract the 21st Panzer Division from launching a major attack uh, against uh, the uh, the British early in the morning of D-Day. Um, and that could have rolled up the entire invasion front from the east. So they, they, they perform a vital role. And again, sticking with the aerial side of things, we've got a question from Johnny, uh, I think it would be Heitch or Heitch on Facebook, who wants to know, did fighter bombers strafe the German clifftop positions during the troop landings on D-Day? The answer to that is easy. It, the answer is no. The Allies have 12,000 planes on call, which is a staggering number. Before D-Day, they've been shaping the battlefield by bombing the German defences and the roads and railways, as, as we've already mentioned. Just before the troops land, the f- huge fleet offshore, and we've got to um, give them a shout, and HMS Belfast is, is a typical survivor moored off the Thames in London today. Um, the fleet have been absolutely wellying every German known position um, all along the coast. And Bomber Command and the US 8th Air Force and the US 9th Air Force of, of uh, slightly lighter bombers are attacking uh, all the German positions and everywhere all along the coast just before the Allies land and then during the day uh, taking on uh, targets of opportunity. But there are so many Allied troops that the one thing you don't want is friendly fire. We do suffer casualties from that. So close-in fighter-bomber strafing of German defences isn't a feature. We don't have the command networks up and running. There is too much battlefield confusion on D-Day. So the Allied air interventions are medium and heavy bombers bombing from quite high up at pre-selected targets that they know about because the, the amount of dirt, debris and smoke just inhibits you being able to direct uh, small aircraft onto opportunity targets like that. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. This is a day where almost no casualty bill is too high a price to pay for what it will give you, which is entry into occupied France and the beginning of the end of World War II. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. 
But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Now, we have quite a specific question on weaponry from Nick Budd on Twitter, which is, how effective was the MG42 as a weapon during D-Day and the remaining campaign? And I suppose we probably should explain what an MG42 is. An MG42, the machine Gewehr 42, is a very high rate of fire German machine gun that's been adapted from earlier models. It can fire up to 1,500 rounds a minute. Uh, It's lightweight and made in large numbers and is known as Hitler's bandsaw because of the the sound it makes, like the sound of ripping sailcloth, as a GI once described to me. Um, It's a weapon of awesome capability. However, the German defenders in Normandy, who are not first-rate, the reserves who come up and start attacking from the 7th onwards are first-rate, but these are a different bunch. And a lot of them don't have the latest equipment. There are some... MG42s, but not a a great number. Um, There are some MG34s, which is the earlier model, which is just as good, but has a lower rate of fire. But there are some First World War era machine guns, the sort of thing that we imagine on a tripod that's big and bulky. And there are lots of those around. And there are other machine guns that have been issued to and captured from the French army in 1940, from the Dutch, from the Belgians, from the Poles and the Czechs. The German defenders are hampered by most people having a weapon, but of widely different calibres. That's the first problem. The second problem is a lot of German uh, second-rate troops, who are the defenders on D-Day, haven't done much training. Rommel has gambled in the months before D-Day and stopped all meaningful military training. uh, And what the defenders have been doing is building the defences themselves, They rolled up their sleeves alongside conscripted French labour, dug the pillboxes, dug the the wooden and metal obstacles in on the beaches, unrolled the barbed wire. Uh, And there's lots of stories of German uh, defenders doing this when Rommel arrives to inspect them. So when the attackers arrive on the morning of the 6th of June, a lot of Germans who are very new to this, you've got a lot of 18-year-old, 17-year-old conscripts, haven't fired a shot in anger. 
uh, have never hurled a, a hand grenade in in anger. So it's not just the story of how many machine guns the Germans have got. We have to look at this in a wider context of an ill-trained defence force who've been building rather than firing weapons beforehand. And yes, they've all got weapons, but of widely different capabilities. And we're sticking here with the German side of things. And we've got a question from Andrew Holmes on Twitter. And he asked, if 21st Panzer had concentrated on one side of the Orn, attacked hours earlier, could it have made a significant difference? Well, we ought to explain what 21st Panzer yes. is. It's a, a, a German a panzer division, in other words, an armoured formation of tanks and half tracks. And it's the one that's the closest to the invasion front. And it's the one the Allies are most concerned about because it's the immediate supply of German tanks uh, that could do great damage to the invasion. Now, if you go through the records, it's it's certainly evident that we don't understand what 21st Panzer Division actually is. It is a formation that we'd fought against uh, in the North African desert. Uh, it was one of Rommel's star uh, tank formations, but it's been crushed and destroyed when the Africa Corps was defeated. It's been reconstituted uh, in France, but it's a shadow of its former self. But even though we're reading high-level strategic intelligence from Bletchley Park, it doesn't tell us exactly what's in 21st Panzer Division. And we think it's got far more tanks uh, and of better quality, Panthers rather than um, Panzer Mark IVs, than it actually has. We even think it has a, a battalion of Tiger tanks, which is completely wrong. So 21st Panzer scares the hell out of the Allied planners and the divisional commanders. So we're in awe of it. Uh, and probably not rightly so. It's badly led by its commander, General Edgar Feutinger, um, who on the night uh, before D-Day is learning French by the pillow book method with his favourite girlfriend actress in Paris. He's not even there. And what Feutinger does, he, he's a party man, so he's he's loyal, but he's not very competent, is he surrounds himself with some quite competent junior leaders and lets them get on commanding the division. Um, but in the early hours, the, the Panzer's perception of the main threat is of the paratroopers landing um, on the very eastern side of the invasion front. And the initial deployments, not made by Feutinger because he's not even there, but spontaneously by the, uh, the lower level commanders, is to put all the weight of the forces they can muster to destroy the paratroopers. And they're about to do that at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock on the morning of D-Day. And had they carried on with that, that would have wiped out most of the paratrooper formations and allowed them then to roll up 3rd Division when they land on Sword Beach. But it doesn't happen. Why? Because the Germans uh, suddenly are aware of the seaborne invaders uh, arriving as well. Uh, and just as 21st Panzer Division are going to go into the attack, uh, on the eastern side of the River Orne, which is one of the boundaries of where the, the, the British paratroopers arrive. That attack is called off. All the German tanks are pulled back. They have to go 10 miles inland over the last remaining bridge and then come back down towards uh, Sword Beach, which is further west. And it takes them the rest of the day to do that because they're now harassed by uh, Allied aircraft. There is uh, Caen, which is the big city they have to drive through, is being reduced to rubble by uh, heavy bombers. And the whole thing is a nightmare. So they they lose the opportunity of almost certain victory in the morning against the paratroopers in the east. Um, they then redeploy against the, the British landing at Sword Beach further west 
and, and they're not even in a position to attack until four o'clock in the afternoon, by which the British are ready and waiting, uh, and the German attacks of 21st Panzer Division come to nothing with very heavy loss. And it's a real indictment of their training, their command chain, that they get it so badly wrong because they could have done severe damage to the British that morning on uh, on D-Day. And I've got another question here, looking at the German side of things, and this is from John Scanlon on Facebook. So he asks, were the horrifying SS massacres of French civilians effective in quelling resistance activities, or did they instead result in galvanising FFI detachments fighting alongside the Allies? Okay, so this is a very interesting question because often we concentrate in the D-Day and the whole Normandy story on the military fighting troops. Uh, and what we've got to remember is this is the first time we fight a major battle in Western Europe where the civilian population are present. They've got nowhere to go. So they're caught in the middle. And there are amongst the Frenchmen uh, a minority who signed up with the resistance uh, and are doing their utmost to slow down the movement of German reserves and aid the Allies. And we need to give them a big shout because they help us enormously uh, and they help their own population uh, enormously. Uh, And the Germans turn on them, particularly in their movement of reserves up from the south of France. The the German Das Reich Panzer Division famously massacres uh, a village, Orador sur Glan, who are perceived to be involved in the resistance effort against the Germans doesn't have to be the case, but this horrible massacre of an entire village is still a stain uh, on the Germans today, and all French schoolchildren are taken to this ghostly village where even the cars are still in the streets, and if you haven't been there, it's worth going there to understand the sacrifice the French made. Um, But of the the role of the resistance, it's huge. It does inflict many delays on the arrival of German uh, reinforcements going to Normandy. They're blowing up railway bridges. They're doing all the, all the things that the RAF can't do or are too busy to do. Um, uh, and so their role is very important. The Germans find it incredibly frustrating and they're on their guard. So the average movement of reinforcements to the invasion front, which should be taking, say, five to seven days, is taking three times that. And German divisions are taking three weeks to a month, sometimes more, to reach the invasion front. And when they do, because they've been split up, because they have to pursue separate roads and different movement corridors, uh, courtesy of the French resistance, the Germans only trickle into the battlefield instead of arriving in great force. So the role of the French resistance shouldn't be uh, understated at all. And I think if we take a snapshot of where we are in understanding D-Day and the Normandy campaign, this this is the role that's being reassessed at the moment. How important is the French uh, domestic response to the invasion? And the more we learn, the more we realise actually they play a huge role, which the you know traditional professional military forces of the West need to take on board. And we don't always uh, understand that, certainly at the time. But I think now we're rediscovering the importance of the French resistance. Okay, so we had a question that came in, um, quite an interesting one here from Matt Yuki on Twitter. And he wanted to know what food and booze did the soldiers have in their ration packs? So booze is a big no-no. We don't take that in any Allied ration packs and the Germans generally aren't given booze. Of course, soldiers and booze are indivisible. And we have unfortunate cases of soldiers in Normandy uh, drinking the local hooch, which is Calvados, 
And if you're unused to strong liquor in the first place, downing a bottle of Calvados can be fatal. And there are soldiers who die of alcohol poisoning in the middle of the Normandy campaign because they don't realise just the, the potency of what they're drinking. Allied ration packs are very interesting. The British have devised them uh, and they're still with us today. Um, and generally, the, uh, the the British and Canadian ration packs produce a, a wholesome, if stodgy, meal that will last for 24 hours and produce about 1,500 calories a day. Now, that's more than the civilians are getting. Um, the American ration packs are even much more luxurious, uh, and those are producing something like 4,500 calories a day, so much, much more Um and are full of things like chocolate that are in short supply for for, for the Brits. Um, this is also the arrival of freeze-dried coffee for the first time. So you find that in uh, American ration packs. And that sets the gold standard. The Germans do have rations, but it, it's very much based on uh, what they can uh, get from the French civilian population. German uh, home industry producing foodstuffs is really hampered by uh, the Allied sea blockade. So German rations are very, very poor indeed. Um, and whenever they can, they supplement with whatever they can capture from the, the Brits uh, and the Americans. So there's a huge disparity. And so D-Day, everybody's too busy fighting for that time to really stop and think about food. But the Germans start off hungry, uh, and as the campaign develops over the next few weeks, get hungrier and hungrier as the Allied air assault stops that passage of food as as well as ammunition, medical supplies, personnel, and everything else to the front. Uh, and they're relying more and more on what they can capture from the Allies, whereas the Allies are sitting very close to their logistics hub, the port of Aramanche and, and the five beaches, and they are eating probably better than they've ever eaten in their lives. But that huge number of people are in a tiny battlefield means that eventually you're going to get all sorts of medical issues and diarrhea flies feeding off the wounded the excrement i mean it's it it's a very nasty atmosphere we think we're going to break out very quickly it doesn't happen so we within weeks we have half a million men fighting over a tiny congested area of terrain so the real issue i think to think about is is not so much food everyone is getting something it's the hygiene issues that go with that campaign at that time. Coming on to the outcomes of D-Day, uh, there's a couple of Google questions that I thought we could maybe combine. So the first is, how many people died on D-Day? And then on which D-Day beach did the Allies suffer the heaviest casualties? Okay, so the, the American uh, National uh, D-Day Monument, which is at Bedford, Virginia, which is a tiny little town in Virginia, um, that loses a very high proportion of the young men who are conscripted, have a D-Day memorial. And they've been working out a count of exactly how many people died on D-Day. And, and it's around about um, three and a half thousand. It's nothing like the huge numbers that are being thrown around by uh, historians in the past. Uh, and one of the problems is death reporting is is different, is varied between the Canadians, the Brits, uh, and the Americans, but that figure is is fairly accurate. I suppose, from our point of view, looking back, what we need to consider is the number of people put out of action on D-Day. So the death toll is is, if you like, a distraction. Yes, it it underlines you know the separation of loved ones and the tragedy. But this is a day where almost no 
casualty bill is too high a price to pay for what it will give you, which is entry into occupied France and the beginning of the end of World War II. And that's how Churchill and Roosevelt see it. And it's brutal to say. So the real casualty bill that people are worried about is how many soldiers will be killed or wounded or posted as missing and, and who never return or are taken prisoner. Um, and that that's much higher. The Allies are going to suffer around about 10,000 killed, wounded, missing uh, on D-Day. The Germans are about the same. But in my book, Sand and Steel, which I had great fun writing because it taught me so much more I didn't know about D-Day, I uncovered the fact that I think more people were killed in the training for D-Day than on the actual day itself. And that underlines just how realistic and tough the training was. So this isn't about the blame game. It's the fact that that training was necessary and relevant. Uh, and the, you know, the, the takeaway from that is if you undertake something that's so crucially important to deciding the future of World War II, the gloves come off. Um, you will lose people in training. Uh, and the very fact that those those deaths never counted before because they crossed different armies, different uh, nationalities, different training areas, uh, and all sorts of different causes of death, explosives that go off prematurely, drowning. There's a lot who, um, who die from drowning. Um, all of this adds up to the fact that the D-Day casualty bill, if the training hadn't been that tough, would have been double, treble what it was on the actual day. But let's put this in context. The planners of D-Day were expecting 20,000 people to die on that first day alone. We don't even approach anything like that. So we get away with much, much lighter casualties than we could ever possibly have imagined. And that's an enormous gift to the Allies. The campaign itself, as it goes on, exceeds our worst planning assumptions with with casualties. But with D-Day itself as a snapshot, we get away remarkably lightly. And I wonder if we could just quickly look at the the other part of that question, which was, on which beach did the Allies suffer the heaviest casualties? The heaviest casualties are undoubtedly suffered on Omaha Beach. But we're forgetting the airborne invaders. There are a lot of paratroopers from the 82nd and 101st who are posted as missing, who don't return, are scattered, some are taken prisoner, some do indeed die. Um, And most of those are associated with the battle for Utah Beach. So though Utah has the latest casualties amongst the seaborne invaders, if we then tally up the airborne troops of two divisions associated with um, Utah Beach, then we could conceivably say that that involves actually the highest tally of casualties. The Brits uh, and Canadians on sword, Juno and gold suffer around about similar sort of casualty totals, which is, is getting on for... 700 to 1,000 killed on on each beach. But it's not about the number who are killed. It's the number who are put out of action. And on D-Day itself, if you look at the number of officers of senior NCOs, in other words, the leaders, the junior leaders, a very high proportion of them are killed by snipers during the the main fighting, which is from about 7 o'clock through till midday. And the fact that the Allied soldiers managed to carry on and achieve what they do despite large numbers of their leaders being killed underlines and and validates their training, which is absolutely superb. Here we've got a macro question from Google, which is, why is D-Day important? And again, 
a related question, what if D-Day had failed, which is also similar to a question we had from Richard Goldstein on Twitter, who asked, how would the war have played out if the Allies had never broken out of Normandy? Okay, so let's reverse engineer that. How how would the war have played out if the Allies hadn't have broken out? I, I mean, it's a great counterfactual question. It's never, ever going to happen. The Allied logistics buildup is so huge. 155,000 men landing on D-Day is the tip of a very, very large iceberg. And the Germans can never compete with that in terms of numbers, in terms of tanks, in terms of fuel, in terms of the amount of aircraft available. So it's completely inconceivable that the Germans would be able to bottle up the Allies in any way at all. Um, so... I would just stop at that. Um, it, it's just not going to happen. So if we go back, why why is D-Day significant? Um, and, and how does uh, World War II play out? This is the beginning of the end. You can't defeat Nazi Germany without invading Germany itself. We are not going to be able to do that by invading southern Italy and fighting our way through Austria, because that's all mountains. So militarily, that is a slow, grinding, attritional campaign, and it's not going to produce the results that, that Churchill would like. And the Americans and even the Brits come around to the fact that the major effort has got to be uh, an invasion along the European coast, and the most likely and easy to, to maintain and control is the North French coast. So if you crack open the German defences, you can flood into France, but that is simply a vehicle in order to get into Germany. Um, and, and the idea, of course, is to get into Germany as quickly as possible. We haven't even sorted out with ourselves or the Russians who's going to go to Berlin. That's not decided until April uh, 1945, when we uh, allow the Russians to go there and decide not to fight in a big city ourselves. But that's uh, to get ahead of ourselves. So this is the beginning of the end. Um, Germany is not going to be defeated on land in any meaningful way uh, without allied forces putting their young men and their boots in the mud. Uh, and in order to do that, we've got to invade France, Belgium, Holland, and get into Germany. Uh, and this is the first step uh, of that initial uh, assault. It's going to take us the better part of a year to achieve this, because VE Day, as we know, uh, is not until the 8th of May. So that's, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, it's nearly a full year after with huge numbers of casualties. So that's what D-Day represents. If you want, it's the shorthand for the beginning of the end of World War II, and there's no other way around it. Now, what are the consequences of D-Day failing, which is the other interesting question that falls out of this? We put in huge amount of redundancy in terms of extra troops, uh, a massive deception campaign to wrong-foot the Germans, to think D-Day is going to come somewhere else and at a different time um, with different troops. Uh, and the net effect is, of course, that all adds up. Uh, and D-Day is the success story of not just the deception campaign of spies, of strategic intelligence, allied logistics, the, the allied air campaign, um, the, the, the winning of the Battle of the Atlantic. It's all of these coming together. But we're still very worried it could fail. We now know in hindsight the Germans are too weak to have ever prevailed uh, and their command chain is too convoluted, and Hitler's grip uh, is too strong, and he's one of the worst military commanders by that stage that you could possibly imagine. But let's let's roll this out, because this is the fear in Allied minds. Um, why? 
Well, Churchill himself has a dodgy track record of overseeing amphibious operations. Gallipoli was his brainchild um, in 1915 that, that failed. The Canadians have been wrestling with this ghost of Dieppe, a massive uh, failed raid in August 1942. Uh, and if we look at the Allied amphibious assault experience to date, Torch against French North Africa was largely unopposed. Sicily uh, in August 43, Salerno in September 43, even Anzio in January 1944 have been close run things with the Germans. They've almost got through to the beachhead. Um, there's been massive uh, disruptions by the fast movement of German reserves. And so the, the Allied experience is not that, well, we're experts at doing this every time we win, we'll do better this time. It's it's always been touch and go right up until now. So the real Allied worry is that actually the, the, uh, the invasion fails. What are the consequences? Well, the Allied command team, Monty, Eisenhower, their careers would be in, in the balance. Uh, and if something as major as D-Day failed, then it's not inconceivable that Eisenhower, Montgomery, Bradley, possibly Patton, would be forced to resign or would be moved elsewhere. Churchill's career would be on the ropes. Roosevelt, who's up for election in November 1944 for re-election for his next term in office, his popularity would be severely dented because a failure would be accompanied by vast casualties. And the Allies had invested in an enormous deception campaign uh, to persuade the Germans it wasn't Normandy. So if we invade in Normandy and are defeated, where else can we go? You can't do the whole thing again. So we'd have to start with another deception campaign. This would have meant that we couldn't have done another amphibious landing for at least a year. And where do we go? So World War II would have carried on. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean the Russians would have forced their way all the way through to Western Europe. But it does mean that World War II would have quite conceivably have carried on for another year with all the tragedy that brings of extra lives lost, the concentration camps and the Holocaust carrying on. So that's why it's so vital that we know now that D-Day is fought and won when it was, because the perception of failure, the alternative, is just so awful to contemplate, and that's what people felt at the time. So that's a great question. Okay, Peter. Well, these are all the questions that I had on my sheet, but were there any really important questions that you feel that I should have asked you? We tend to think of the Germans fighting D-Day as this wonderful war machine. That's only the machine that arrives in the later stages of, of the, the Normandy campaign. And, and so the, the, the story of the Allies, who are superbly well-equipped, average age 21, all having undertaken at least a year's worth of relevant, meaningful training, we need to contrast with the German defenders, average age 35, Rommel had met a gunner who was aged 58 in a gun emplacement, most of whom have not done any meaningful uh, training. And by comparison of their equipments, they are much less well-fed, less well-equipped. They have poorer supplies uh, of ammunition. Their medical training uh, and resources are, are far inferior. Um, most of the Germans in Normandy on D-Day are reliant on horses and bicycles for their mobility, the Allies don't take a single horse to the Normandy campaign at all. That's the truth of the matter of weighing up the two sides on D-Day, and we often forget it. Why? Well, we overlook the fact that the Germans are reliant on over uh, 150,000 horses in Normandy because we look at the newsreels, uh, and this is where the Germans 
still score very highly in our perception of World War II today. All the newsreels show German tanks and half-tracks and trucks and, and uh, Kubel wagons, their equivalent of the Jeep, driving up to the front. And, and the reality is the number of vehicles in the German armed forces is tiny and they're short of fuel and they risk a great deal by moving around in daylight. So the vast majority of Germans move on foot, reliant on horses to tow all the heavy stuff or bicycles. And that's a huge, huge disparity. But today, if we are studying the Second World War, we look at those newsreels. The model makers love them to uh, to reproduce all the different a variety of German kit uh, that they see on the newsreels. And the reality is the cameramen were told to turn off their cameras whenever horses came into view. So the image of the German fighting machine that Goebbels and his propaganda men at the front create in 1944 is completely at odds with reality. And yet, and yet, that's still the image that most people have today of this crack war machine manoeuvring on caterpillar tracks rather than horseshoes. And it underlines, you know, that our understanding of of D-Day and of the Normandy campaign is is very imperfect because it rests on a few visual images that have been handed down to us, which are often wrong. That was Peter Caddick Adams. His book, Sand and Steel, A New History of D-Day, is out now published by Random House. In the May issue of BBC History magazine, Peter also joined in a debate about why the Allies won the Second World War. That was for a special VE Day supplement we're running, and that issue is on sale now. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then please do drop us a line with ideas of topics or historians you'd like us to include in this series. You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Our next episode will be out tomorrow when Anne de Corsi will be discussing Coco Chanel.